0: Hi everyone. I'm Michael Kalori. I'm an editor here at Wired, and you are listening to the Gadget Lab, the podcast where we talk about the latest gadgets, apps, and services that you need to know about and how they impact our lives. I am joined this week by my co-host, Wired senior writer Lauren Good. Hello, Ariel Pardes is out this week. She is speaking at Tech Festival in Copenhagen Denmark that's what it's called tech festival all one word uh if you're there say hello for us she's not responding to my tweets
1: she's not she tweeted that she has she's staying there she lives there now so I think we've lost her forever to Copenhagen which is what we suspected might happen before she went I guess we'll just have to go do a little road show and visit her in her new home and wear comfy sweaters and eat a lot of seafood she does love Um, Scandinavia yes she does I mean what's not anyway (laughs) But you will hear Arielle's voice in just a few minutes because she was here earlier when we all interviewed Mike Isaac for this week's show. Mike is a reporter who covers Silicon Valley for the New York Times. And if you haven't heard about it yet, he has just released a new book called Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber. It's all about Uber. It's a fantastic read. I think everyone here in this room, including Ariel, who's not here at the moment, has read it, except for me. I haven't finished it yet, but I'm working <laughs> my way through it. It's really great. Uh, It talks a lot about Travis Kalanick and Gary Camp, who originally conceived of the idea for Uber. It talks about their rise to really disrupting the transportation industry as we know it. um, And ultimately, the cultural issues that led to some pretty serious problems. Uh, It's a great book, and we're going to talk to Mike all about it.
0: It reads like a true crime book, which is kind of neat, like a page turner kind of thing. It's out this week, so Mm -hmm. you can actually order it now. And Mike is on a little book tour going around uh, around the country. Uh, It was especially fun for me to read because Mike Isaac uh, uh, used to work here at Wired and he used to be on this show. He was one of the co-hosts on the Gadget Lab back when the show was like video and 15 minutes long every week.
1: That's and right.
0: Lauren, you also worked with Mike at some right. point in your career. I as worked well? with
1: Mike at what was used, it used to be called All Things D. Yeah. And then that became Recode. And when Mike was here, um, he said, Remember the time I crashed on your couch? <laughs> and neither of us, I don't think we ended up recording this part, but neither of us remembered why. We were like, Oh, oh yeah, maybe, was that hurricane sandy why this was back in new york like in 2012 <laughs> or something and i'm like was there a blizzard like we just we didn't know but um i don't know maybe in his next book he will get to the bottom of that mm. <laughs> but it was yeah it was great seeing mike again he's a great guy he's a great writer and um we're looking forward to chatting with him a little bit later but first we should probably get to the news yes
0: let's do it why don't you go first lauren
1: okay sonos If you're familiar with Sonos, it's a Santa Barbara-based Wi-Fi speaker company. Well, it has joined the Bluetooth party. Just yesterday, it revealed the Sonos Move. This is a new $399 portable Bluetooth speaker that can also work on Wi-Fi networks like other Sonos speakers do. Now, this is a big deal because it's Sonos's first Bluetooth speaker. For years and years, it has dismissed the whole idea of Bluetooth speakers. Its CEO even called them stepping stones to higher-fidelity audio products, basically looking at things like Amazon's Echo Dot and Google's little Home Mini and all that stuff and just poo-pooing them and saying... Nah, we're better, we're higher quality, those are just stepping stones. But it turns out if you can't beat them, you should join them, because the Sonos Move is a Bluetooth speaker. It's not only expensive though for a Bluetooth speaker, it's big, it weighs over six and a half pounds, it's nearly 10 inches tall, and honestly, I I used it briefly. It feels pretty hefty. Um, On Twitter, someone joked that they were going to use it as a kettlebell, (laughs) to which I replied. It's the Sonos Squat. It's their <laughs> next product. Um, but Sonos was obviously, obviously trying to create something that was physically big enough for big sound while also still being portable. And it has this nifty built-in handle in the back um, since the CEO told me they thought other solutions for toting around speakers are quote-unquote kludgy. Uh, there's a couple other new Sonos. There's a Sonos One SL. That's $179. It's an evolution of the Sonos One. just doesn't have microphones. There's a Sonos Port, which is an audio receiver. Um, Mike. The Sonos Move is expensive. Are you going to get one?
0: You know, I'm into it. Four hundred dollars is a lot to pay for a speaker. It's actually it used to not be a lot to pay for a Sonos speaker because most of them were priced around the three, four, five hundred dollar range. But now it is a lot to pay for a Sonos speaker because their most popular models are the ones that are two hundred dollars. Um, the the Sonos One mm-hmm. and the old Play One, and the difference is the One has the microphones for. The Amazon Assistant and the Google (laughs) Assistant—I won't say it by name uh, because then it'll set off people's speakers in their homes—but those have been really popular, and I think that's sort of what people expect to pay for a Sonos speaker now—is that $200. And since this is twice as much money, just because it moves around, I mean, it—I'm curious to see how it sounds, but I'm—I'm into the idea of owning one, just because. In my own home, I have a lot of Sonos speakers, but there are some places where I cannot use Sonos speakers. This would solve that because I can just pick it up and carry it into those places. So I like that about it. It's a smart design. It looks really cool. Um, I'm into it.
1: Well, what else is going on?
0: People are dating.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You don't say.
0: After rolling out in other countries last year, Facebook dating launched in the U.S. this week. Now any Facebook user who's 18 or older can access a new set of features that are designed to help them find love or just a meaningful relationship of some duration with another human on Facebook and really whatever you're looking for is there people who have been using facebook to scope out potential love interests for years but facebook dating offers a few new things specifically for dating you get a specialized profile that's separate from your facebook profile plus the option to either show or hide your dating profile to people in your network so if you only want to date people with whom you share a connection sort of like on hinge you can do that or If you wanna block out all those people and just cruise for total strangers, you can do that too. Uh, There's no swiping in the Facebook dating experience. Instead, the system relies on the events that you attend, the locations that you frequent and other signals of shared interest. And that's what it uses to show you matches. This is where Facebook has an edge over the very crowded dating app field. The company already knows more about you than Tinder or Bumble ever will. So it's destined to be a pretty solid matchmaker, I think.
1: What happens if you're one of those people who just gave up on your Facebook account within the past couple of years, you're not giving it as much data as you used to, or at least you think you're not, since we know data pulls, you know, data is pulled from a lot of different sources. Yeah. Is it still have that kind of advantage?
0: I think it does because um, with you know, with respect to the, the data that it knows about you, it can even so It'll match you with people who have shared interest with you. If you did a lot of posting on Facebook like five years ago and you, you know, uh, liked bands and you liked events and you posted photos from specific events that you attended, it'll even go back and like match you with people who were there at those things or people who've also liked those bands, even if they've only liked them recently, or people who've also seen those bands in concert, even if it was just last week. So you'll still get the shared interest aspect. Um, with regards to other data that might be going into it, you can put uh instagram photos of yourself that you think are uh very good instagram photos of yourself and you can attach those to your facebook dating profile as well so it can pull from your other facebook-owned platforms and sort of build a profile using all of that stuff so yeah i think that advantage is still there for facebook
1: fascinating. Mm-hmm. I find it fascinating how Facebook is taking some of the things that we typically just do on Facebook anyway and they're sort <laughs> of categorizing them or verticalizing them because it's a repackaging of the data they already have as more and more people move away from the, what's you know known as the big blue Facebook experience. Mm-hmm. So we've seen this with video, right? Like the, Facebook is a giant platform for video, but now it's called Watch. Yes. And Facebook has always been a way for people to check each other out and scope out the goods and hookup and now it's dating yep (laughs) wonder what's coming next
0: yep um one quick thing uh before we move on about that in particular they have um facebook has integrated messenger into the dating experience so if you're going on a date with someone and you want to let a friend know who you're going to be with where you're going and when you're expected to be back you can do that automatically through facebook messenger from Facebook dating.
1: Oh, okay, so that step that happens a lot of times when people say, let's, let's get off hinge and go to messaging. Yeah. Let's, let's just go to like real messaging. Yeah. Now you just go to Messenger. Yeah. Crafty. Yeah. All right, I wouldn't know, I'm never dating again. <laughs> Should we get to Mike and talk about Uber? Let's do it. Let's do it. I am super pumped to be introducing our <laughs> guest this week, New York Times reporter Mike Isaac. It's pretty much impossible not to include super pumped in the introduction. Sorry, Mike, this is just gonna be the thing going forward. No, I get it a lot. But that's because that is the title of Mike's, is this your first book?
2: This is my first book.
1: First book. It's a riveting read about the rise of Uber, the ruthlessness of its founders, particularly Travis Kalanick, its total and utter disruption of transportation around the world, and all of the trouble the company has gotten into throughout. Mike, thanks so much for joining us on Wired's Gadget Lab podcast.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It's nice to be back three or four years later. <laughs> That's right. I was going to say
1: we all have a little bit of history with you here because you and I used to work together at All Things D and Recode, and Mike, you used to be Mike's. Michael used to be Mike's editor.
0: Uh, yeah, I edited some of your stories. I wouldn't call him my boss specifically, yeah. but we did work together. We're, we've always been a little loose here.
2: <laughs> I don't like titles and
0: terms. But we were both on this show together Yeah, for many episodes.
2: My favorite part about that was Kalore's uh, mom specifically talking about how good we looked each each episode when it was on video, and I missed that, so shout out to to Mike Calori's mom.
1: Uh, If you're listening, they both look great.
2: (laughs) Yeah, leave it in the comments,
1: even though you can't see us. (laughs) Okay, so Mike, what was the moment for you? Because you've been covering Uber for a while now. Mm. What was the moment at which you thought, okay, this Uber story, this is a book. This isn't just a series of articles.
2: Yeah. um, So actually I had no exactly the moment because it was I was in, so for a while I had, I'd been at the Times, I moved to New York Times in 2014. Um, That's when I started covering Uber. And at that point, uh, I had talked to some publishers about doing a book, but it was sort of not really the time. And, and the narrative then was like, would have been like, look at this crazy company and how great it is. And that's just not the type of book I wanted to write or the type of thing I like doing. And so flash forward to 2016, 2017, when like everything just sort of poops to bed for this company and like the whole world starts coming down upon it and um, in june of 2017 i'm in la and this is in the book i'm in la um and this sort of investor coup starts happening against travis and i get involved in in like the going public part of it or like they may tell me they may not whatever um and so this crazy thing happens and he gets pushed out of the company and um that morning I get a call from, the next morning I get a call after not sleeping for like 36 hours, I get a call from my agent and says, "like," and he says like, this is a book, like the, the insane drama, this is all playing out in public, like if this is not a book, I don't know what is. And that actually felt right. So yeah, at that point, you know, I was convinced and I wrote a book proposal in like a weekend and we pitched it and it sort of came together.
3: The book is fantastic, and we should just say it's as much a story of Uber as a company as it is a story about Travis Kalanick and his psyche, and it's sort of also a story of this moment in the world where Uber has sort of created this mm. model that so many companies have have copied, and the way that that's affected not just technology, but sort of like the global economy and yeah. <laughs> how we fit into it as people. Um, I wonder sort of if you can set the stage for people who haven't read it, like we all have. Um, <laughs> and just tell us like a little bit about you know where where it begins, right? Like you start actually well before Uber exists as a company by yeah. sort of t- telling people about travis,
2: yeah. i think I think there are a few things that I wanted to get at. I mean, later on in the company's history is very dramatic. But I think the the thing that we probably forget a little bit now is, what things were like before everyone had an iPhone, you know, and before like smartphones were so common. I actually used to work at Wired in in this very building and back in 2010 before Uber was really big, I would have to leave interview to go to interviews 45 minutes early because I wasn't sure a cab was going to come down here and pick me up or not. And Mike and I have done many weird I think we interviewed a Blackberry executive together and like prayed to get there on time. Oh yeah. Do you remember that? For the the, the ill-fated tablet (laughs) that I wrote about for you and it was really terrible. (laughs) Um, Not the story, the tablet. Yeah 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 yeah, the the story was great. Um, So the the so one of the things I want to sort of get at in the book is like the confluence of things that make it sort of the very right circumstances for uber becoming uber right and that that was you know this wealth of venture capital pouring into the valley at that specific moment in time that was uh, the rise of amazon web services which made which made it easy for startups to sort of flourish um with very little overhead and then you know the many people have talked about the ubiquity of the iphone and smartphones and and uh, really, these, these three things that converged at once that made Uber and calling connecting uh, drivers and riders uh, all over the world to, uh, to pick up riders um, possible then. And I think if, if there were things before Uber, if you remember, like, what, Cabulous and mm-hmm. Taxi Magic and all these things that are now dead or dying or whatever. Um, but it just, you know, a lot of what they say about Startups and success is just like luck and timing, you know, and even if you have the right the right product um, It might not hit the right time. And so I think uber was really lucky to hit uh, when it did you Well know. you also
1: mentioned in the book that those apps in the early days were still targeting the existing taxi cab market. Yep. So taking the existing infrastructure and saying, well, they, these are still taxi cab drivers who so have to buy medallions and they get licenses and then they're still driving with these like set fares whereas Garrett Camp, the co-founder of Uber along with Travis, had this idea of like a luxury service in mind and yep. so they uh, they were dispatching black town cars to
2: start. Yeah, a lot of I mean the thing again that we don't really recognize now or I think that most people don't really notice now is that even early Uber really wanted to work within the confines of the existing system, right? You know, people that were licensed operators of black car services and and um they never really thought about Uber X, the, the you know, the free for all anyone can drive thing until uh, until later on, until a few years into the company. And the funny thing is it wasn't even Uber that came up with it. It was Lyft that created, well, it was really Sidecar, this now defunct startup, and then Lyft sort of made it big, and then Uber uh, decided we're going to get creamed if we don't go into this market. So they sort of rolled out uh, ride-sharing, and and anyone who has a car can kind of drive for us, and you know did a little bit of revisionist history, and now everyone thinks that Uber sort of made up the thing, which they didn't, but mm-hmm. that, that, be, that would become a theme of uh, the ruth- ruthlessness of Uber, of just letting letting Lyft be kind of like uh, Snapchat and Facebook, right? You just mm-hmm. let one smaller company be your incubator for ideas and then rip them off and laugh all of the way to the bank.
3: That ruthlessness is just as important as the luck and the timing yep. in the story of Uber. There are so many great examples in the book of these insane But brilliant things that Uber does to try and get a leg up on the competition or to try to outsmart regulators. So there are like all these examples of ways that um, they sort of like spy on Lyft to see Mm -hmm. what they're doing before they're doing it. And these ways that they sort of block regulators from having access to um, the real version of the app so they don't think that they're doing what they're actually doing. Um, That's incredible. Like, do you have favorite... Perhaps favorite's not the right word. Do you have a,
1: <laughs> a favorite illegal activity?
3: Yeah, I mean, there are just so many of these moments uh, in the book. Are, are there ones that you sort of found particularly jaw-dropping or incredible um, when you think about a, a person in a company trying to get ahead?
2: Yeah, you know, it's funny. One of the things I sort of wrestled with, too, is, is not everything they do in in this book, or even in just in building Uber, was necessarily illegal. I think sometimes they and Travis really was a specialist at finding the finding the line, and then pushing it to the limit, or in many cases walking right over it, walking a little bit over it, you know. And so they would have I would be on the phone arguing with them on like if something was legal or or if they had an interpretation of the law that um, that that. That made it not legal, right? Or that made it that made it legal. And so, I think the uh, my favorite sort of things they did was was just to build these automated programs to just slam regulators with a bunch of bullshit from people. Um, am I allowed to curse? My- mm-hmm. oh, yeah, 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 got it. Got it. <laughs> the FCC is not going to be <laughs> for this one. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so there was this one guy who uh, created these. Uh, you know, essentially push button things inside of the app that had people send automated emails to their local representatives that could just like, or phone calls just saying, we want Uber to come here. Uh, one time in Austin, they, they, they did this ridiculous thing where they hired a person to drive a stagecoach up and down the streets of like South Congress and said, like, if, if your local, you know, regulator gets their way, this will be the fastest mode of transportation (laughs) in Austin and blah, 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 we want Uber here. And uh, that ended up backfiring because Austinites don't like big corporations coming and telling them what to do, but I... um, And
3: they also couldn't have predicted the rise of e-scooters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) Don't get me started on that shit. But
2: uh, I think, um, you know, and and to, to, I guess, to be fair for them, like, look, if you're trying to fight, and I kind of get this in the book too, if you're trying to fight a, uh, a competitor, an entrenched competitor that already is willing to play dirty in some other ways, you know, then maybe you have to sort of roll up your sleeves and, and do your own thing. And in some, you know, pretty innovative ways to to push back against folks that are trying to keep you from entering. So, I don't know. There, I mean... It's it's debatable whether some of these things were ethical or not or if you if you believe Uber was acting ethically. But some folks, and a lot of folks, have pushed back on the assumption that Uber was a bad company and some of these practices are just ways of, of making it.
1: I think if you were to divide this book into two parts, and there are many parts to it, but if you had a look at Uber over the past decade, the first half is probably all about this tremendous Growth, right? Mm. It's pre-IPO. Mm. There's a lot of venture capital being thrown around. Then you have people like John Doer starting funds simply for apps for mm. the app store. Um, you talk about the rise of mobile. You talk about the fact that Travis is dispatching anybody with any type of professional expertise whatsoever into different markets and saying, "Go build Uber here." You know, giving like people like this level of autonomy just to go spend money somewhere um, to reach critical mass, offering drivers promotions. It's like spend, spend, spend. And it's all about the business and the ruthlessness of the business. And then you kind of get to like 2015 to 2017 till now. So like the latter half of this saga, when all of the culture that's been established at the ground level catches up to Uber. What to you, I mean, there's so much. There's like the party in Vegas. There's the Susan Fowler story. Mm -hmm. Like what to you was the moment when Uber's culture really caught up to it?
2: You know, I think um, this is something that it's weird. I think I even have this problem too. Um, But I think when you are a small startup, you look at yourself in a way that everyone is rooting against you and you sort of have to do what it takes to make things work and to grow you grow or you die right and at some point and i think this is true of facebook i think this is true a lot of a lot of companies but at some point you are not a scrappy startup anymore you're the biggest person in the room right you're the bit you are um the goliath and not the david and so I, i think a lot i think some founders have a hard time internalizing that and still feel like we're 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 the small guy, we're just a startup. We and Travis in particular always wanted it to feel like a startup. He didn't want it to feel like you fucking work at Cisco now and like you you don't want to go to work and and do this sort of boring tech job and and be put out to pasture. Like he wants that sort of energy. And I don't think Uber was able to realize that. I think I think they continued to operate in this mode of scrappiness and um, fighting for every inch long after they kind of had I don't want to say won but were winning you know and it's sort of like maybe spiking the ball too hard after after they didn't need to and I think the best CEOs and I would say this with Travis too the best CEOs know how to grow and change with the company depending on where it's at right And and I don't think Travis was ever able to do that I think he had one mode and and could only operate on that mode in every every part of his business and um, that's something I think a lot about like if he was able to change would he still be at the top if he was able to like change the way he, he approached um, uber was he, would he be able like could he be like all right our culture was one way now and now we need to switch into a different mode and now we need to create actual HR systems that um, that a big company has, right? And things that sort of professionalize what the company was supposed to be. Um, maybe that would have saved a lot of pain and maybe he wouldn't have gotten kicked out of his own company.
0: So as, as you mentioned earlier, that that moment came in 2017. Yep. Uh, have things gotten any better there since then? <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, yeah, I mean... There's this okay, so the CEO now is um, Dara Kazushahi, Shahi, um, aka like Silicon Valley's dad, who is uh, <laughs> that's, that was a Washington Post uh, article wrote about him as like dad of of Silicon Valley, and I thought it was funny. But he's 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 basically just been apologizing for the past two years about how messed up Uber is, and and like we are doing the right thing, period, and sort of this is our way to change. I think. Um, I think they have gotten better in, in a few specific ways. A lot of the OG Uber people have cycled out. Um, I just got a tip the other day that a lot of the problematic folks at, uh the original Uber are starting to go over to Lime, which is why they're kind of gnarly inside. I probably shouldn't tell you that. But which is why they're kind of like gnarly right now. So so that's an interesting story. I want to go figure out what's going on there. But um, uh, so like they have like a new fresh crop of folks that are inside of Uber now and trying to you know whatever I think also like some folks are so traumatized on having like the entire world hate your company for an entire year that they're probably being held to a higher standard now and and I don't think that it's worth just whipping them for life I think companies are able to change and stuff but I also think it's really hard when you have a certain type of DNA and a certain type of culture to change that in the long run. So what are we, like two years into Dara? Dara just um, became CEO two years ago this week, actually, and I think it'll probably take longer to figure out, especially after the lockup, um, after the IPO, when people are able to sell their shares, there's probably going to be more churn and more new people coming in. So it'll change and things have changed, but um, it takes a while.
3: At the same time, in in the decade that Uber has existed, it's completely changed the way we understand technology, right? Like it's it's a company that has, on the one hand failed dramatically on a cultural sense but also succeeded dramatically in the sense that it's hard to even imagine a world without Uber. Mm. Um, and because of that, I always find it really striking that the company still loses so much money. <laughs> How is that possible?
2: Uh, no, that's a great point. I think. Something I was thinking about the other day. So, when Uber was coming up, it was basically the only ride hailing game in town that was international and didn't have many competitors um, initially abroad. Like, they were fighting against the taxi industry. That, if everything had stayed the same in that regard, it would have been, they probably would have been in much better shape right now. Now, um, the landscape has dramatically changed. They have competitors on pretty much every major continent in which they operate. Um, softbank has completely screwed up how funding works not even just beyond, beyond uber like for every company and they have you know this initial hundred billion dollar venture fund that they're sinking billions of dollars into companies to um, hope that their bets pan out and so that just messes with the economics and and the amount of money startups are willing to burn in order to grow and and softbank is not only an investor in Uber, but investing in competitors of Uber. So it's like this weird dynamic where they're pitting their children against each other to eat them alive. And um, so so a lot of that growth, initial growth is topping out, I think. But now you have a new category, which is food delivery. And I think food delivery is now where we were maybe five years ago with um, ride hailing and that, the early stuff was a ton of subsidizing rides and now I think food delivery is being subsidized like crazy. A lot more money is going into that and they see all their future growth there. But it's this constant thing of, of buying growth and kicking profitability down the road and that's where they keep saying now. Now they're getting closer to closing that profitability gap in rides, uh, in ride hailing is what Dara said on the last earnings call, but they're they're saying it's gonna be longer because of how much they're spending on food delivery so I don't know I feel like there's always a thing that you can sort of point to saying we got to spend to get here and I feel like that was Amazon's playbook for a very long time and and they like comparing themselves to Amazon because everyone loves Amazon but like there are a lot of their well everyone on Wall Street loves Amazon (laughs) let me say that Uh, everyone everyone every every trader loves Amazon but I don't know, like uh, the big question mark is, does this fundamentally work as a business when you're not you know, in an ideal environment? And is that Id- environment gonna be ideal or are you gonna constantly be fighting off new entrants? Um, and that's the weird sort of dichotomy of looking at Uber versus Lyft, which is very, which is much smaller, doesn't compete in a zillion different markets or whatever, is just in the US and is actually trading better um, than Uber for that reason. So. So it's weird. It's a weird dynamic and which company is more valuable or which one is going to be larger and more successful in the future.
1: I have two questions about Travis. So the first is, what is Travis doing now? Because I'm going to go ahead and assume that he's not working as a venture capitalist, (laughs) considering how much he loves venture
2: capitalists.
1: And two, um, did he participate in this book in any way?
2: Um, I'll answer the second question first. He did not. uh, we went to everyone I name in the book and and talk we give people a chance to comment I I hired a fact checker and a researcher um, to do to go through this because it's not a pretty book for a lot of people and um, I just want to make sure I'm fair and accurate but no uh, um, he did not participate he didn't want this book to be written probably um, right now he you know the 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 interesting thing now is he's he was the one that actually invented Uber Eats inside of Uber, and he was a big proponent of that line of business before he got pushed out. And folks on the board, including Bill Gurley, one of the uh, the the character in the book that becomes the sort of de facto hero fighting off Travis, um, was against. Uh, this idea of building another money-losing line of business in it, and so Travis, I think, feels vindicated now for like growing this huge category that now a lot of money is going into. So his whole thing now—I wrote a story kind of on this the other day. I think you guys have written about it before too. Is is things called cloud kitchens, which is basically repurposing crappy real estate to to build like meal preparation areas that exist for servicing restaurants that exist only inside of delivery apps. Mm. Mm-hmm. Travis's idea is a little bit different than the Sprigs or what, Muncheries or whatever those things. I think David Chang had something called Maple, uh, all of which I think failed. But uh, Travis's thing is virtual restaurants that only exist as choices inside of delivery apps like Uber Eats. So it's actually kind of an ingenious play to remove the retail uh, storefront part of a restaurant to uh, and remove that overhead and it's becoming more popular I think he's d- got to deal with sweet green right now, and he's um, But he's doing the opposite. He's he's whereas with uber. He was very public-facing and and Wanted to be out there. He's kind of gone underground and is doing this other thing in secret So it's probably a better idea for him at this point interesting <laughs> so
0: as as rapidly and as widely as Uber was able to grow, uh, one place where they didn't find any success was China. Mm-hmm. So, what is it about China that Uber was unable to crack?
2: Totally. That's, um, I think, another thing I talk about in the book is like China is like the white whale for every tech CEO in California and Silicon Valley. I think, you know, there's, I mean, there's a billion people there that's um, so much like, so many u- potential users that folks eye with, like, their mouth watering. Like Zuckerberg, like, f- suggested naming his firstborn child after, uh, after. no, he asked the president of China to name his firstborn child, I think. This was back when Zuckerberg was still trying to get Facebook into China. Um, Travis thought he had cracked it. He um, sort of tried to ingratiate himself with the Chinese government. He He kept saying, you know, he kept trying to, like, Schmooze. I, I think he thought he made more progress with them than he actually did. You know, they have a very nationalistic sense of who's going to be the winner in any given category in China. And so they had already uh, preordained Didi, the Chinese ride-hailing app. Um, uh, the other thing was the, the insane amount of fraud going on in China uh, in these ride-hailing services, like burn-through money, at rates that was just crazy, right? So, um, I'm pretty sure at one point, a few sources I talked to said that about half of all rides in a few in a number of cities in China were completely fraudulent at one point, and they spent about two billion dollars over the course of a a year or two, I think. So, imagine investors sort of putting money towards this idea that they're expanding in China and all of that money just being like vaporized instantly and going to like fraudsters. So a lot of their efforts were kind of in vain at some, and then at some point the board was like, we are losing an insane amount of money on a project that I don't think you're going to get any real traction in, so we need to bail it out. And um, to their credit, they made this deal, Travis and Emil Michael, his um, COO, or it's Chief Business Officer, some made up title. Um, <laughs> they made this deal with Didi, the predominant ride hailing company there, where they gave Uber a stake in Didi for the rest of their business and they ended up having some percentage of Didi stock and and it has risen in value since. So one could argue that they, that they were able to bail themselves out, uh, at least in the amount of equity that they have.
0: Uh, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back with more with Mike Isaac, author of Super Pumped. So with all these ride-hailing apps out there, will taxis be gone anytime soon?
2: Uh, You know, it's funny. I think we all live in San Francisco and we have an idea of what we think the future looks like, but, you you know, I went to Athens a few weeks ago. Uh, Georgia or Greece? uh, Athens, Greece. And and then some of the Isles in Greece. And there's a lot of parts of the world that doesn't have uber and that have still very strong taxi unions and uh protect protect themselves essentially from this and and uber has retreated on some of these fronts just because uh anything from it's too expensive to fight to it can be violent or even dangerous to fight some of these entrenched uh competitors so i don't think it's going away i think in like a lot of the um a lot of places in the U.S. you're probably going to see ride hailing be more prevalent if not already there you know and but I think we do have a sort of far off version of the future in our in our minds just because by virtue of us living here but there's still like it's a big world a lot of a lot of uh, taxi unions are still super strong and I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon.
1: One of the things you know in the book is it's early on in the book um, like within the first hundred pages, which I know because that's as far as I've gotten. Yeah. Um, supposed to lie and you, say that you finished. It. I'm gonna fly through it. I just I could only get through so much in two weekend nights, we, Mike. We
0: both finished it.
1: I, I, you guys had the book first. Everyone at Wired was super pumped to get the galleys, and I got it last. So okay, but Mike, I really did give up my weekend reading for you. Aww. Yeah, and but I was happy to do it. And one of the things that you talk about early on in the book is this whole idea that really a lot of Silicon Valley spawn. From um, this, you know, this idea of counterculture and sort of mm-hmm. fighting the man, and entrepreneurs um, taking like stake in their own companies, and then sort of creating this libertarian playground for folks. But now, like in the modern internet, you look at some of these leaders who um, have effectively wrestled and maintained control over their s- multi-billion-dollar companies yeah. through things like dual-class stock structures and just having loads of money. Mm-hmm. Um, then now they've created this new sort of, um, I don't know, this, I, I don't even know what to call it, meritocracy of Silicon Valley. You know, They're their own man. They're the man they were fighting against. Yeah. Um, talk about how Uber is really sort of emblematic of that and, and how it fits into the broader Silicon Valley culture right now.
2: Uh, it's really funny. One of Travis's uh, 14 values, 14 bro values, he, <laughs> it, it, what, one of them was like, let, let the best – ideas win, right? And what they thought was a true meritocracy. Anyone inside of Uber could give a good idea and rise to the top. And I think that's largely disproven. You know, like a lot of the employees I talked to said only, you know, it was the best idea, but only certain people could give the best idea and really the people in power are the ones making the decisions. And look, I think what's fascinating to me is how we are in, I mean, we're in San Francisco, right? We're in the Bay Area where we're like the home of protests and countercultural movements and hippies and let everything be free. And it's now like emblematic of this new wave of capitalism where the, the CEOs of some of the most powerful companies in the world are unable to be removed from their seats because of how they've structured um, voting in, in, in how people are able to, like, uh, like, if you're a shareholder in any one of these companies, you shouldn't delude yourself that, to think that you have a, a vote or a say in how it's going to go. Mark Zuckerberg um, still has his seat at the top of his company, even though he arguably uh, ruined mm. the world, <laughs> if, if you believe a lot of Facebook detractors. Um, Evan Spiegel's not going anywhere he also has a similar structure Larry and Sergey still same sort of dual clash stock structure so folks talk a lot a big game about democratization of technology and we're gonna change everything but it's just people in power wanting to stay in power and that's like the story of every great civilization and every great company you know it's folks and then people realize that once they're at the top they like being at the top so yeah. Um, Maybe my book kind of ends on a cynical note, but but one thing I, I think that um, I do want to say something really nice. I was at like a conference a while ago talking to um, a kid who was coming out of a school and and wanted to go into tech specifically to change some of the cultural issues that he has seen you know over the past five years of criticism or two years of criticism in tech, and so. Mm-hmm you know, he he wanted to empower people of color and women and, and different things and working on AI, like having different types of voices and people programming these things so we can fight against implicit bias. And I think there's gonna be a wave of folks who want to go into tech, but try to do it differently than than has been done before, you know, like then than like white males building, you know, huge corporations that, primarily exist to serve white males, if that makes sense. And I think that's hopeful, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a different way of looking at how we should build things and, and taking into account like a fuller version of who uses these products in the future, so it's not totally cynical at least.
1: I look forward to getting to the non-cynical part, (laughs) which I will do next weekend. I promise you, my next weekend, I'll be done with the book. (laughs) And then I'll pass it along to someone else at Wired who's super pumped to read it.
0: We won't spoil the ending for you. (laughs) Thank
1: you. (laughs) I think I know what happens.
0: Well, Mike, thanks
2: for coming back onto the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Tell your mom I said hi. <laughs> That's not if, an if ins- anybody
0: else said that to me they would get a punch in the face <laughs> but coming from you and knowing the context I will tell her you said hello <laughs> of you. course thanks for coming on the show
2: thanks for having me
0: Okay, before we get to recommendations, Lauren, why don't you tell us what we're going to be talking about on next week's show? Because it's a big one.
1: Is there an event happening next week?
0: There is. There is an Apple event happening on Tuesday of next week in Cupertino, California. You're going to be there, I think.
1: I'll be there. Tom Simonite will be there. We'll have other people on the ground. We'll have editors monitoring remotely. We'll have all the news that you need to know. But this is the big annual hardware event. And so you can at least expect to see things like a new iPhone, possibly more than one, a new Apple Watch some announcements around services, which is a growing part of Apple's business, and uh, a lot of the typical Apple fanfare, I think.
0: Awesome. So next week's show is just all going to be Apple, probably, because there's probably going to be enough stuff to talk about.
1: Well, in the tech world, you never know what's going to happen, Michael. (laughs) You just jinxed it, probably. But yeah, it's a safe bet we're going to be talking a lot about Apple, so tune in. Awesome. So let's do recommendations. Why don't you go first?
0: So my recommendation this week is a skateboard movie. Now, it's unlike what you may think of as a skateboard movie. When you think about a skateboard movie, uh, it's not like a, you know, VHS style, you know, hour long thing with a bunch of different skaters in it and hip hop music playing in the background. It's more like a weird avant garde poem of a movie. It's called Ye Old Destruction or Yod or Y-O-D. It goes by all those names. And it's by uh, a guy named Thomas Campbell. Thomas Campbell uh, is an artist, a visual artist. He's been working in film and painting and sculpture for years and years. Um, This is his first uh, big skateboard movie. Previously, he's done surf movies. So he did a movie called Sprout, which is one of my all-time favorite surf movies, uh, all on 16 millimeter. And this is a skateboard movie that's mostly on 16 millimeter. There's like a couple of drone shots and a couple of GoPro shots, but mostly 16 millimeter, all in black and white absolutely no dialogue, it's one hour long, and the soundtrack, the score, is the only thing you hear uh, in the movie. And it's done by No Age, the band No Age, which is like a weird, abrasive, sort of post-punk duo. It's drums and guitar, so it's a very avant-garde score. Um, It's a very abrasive movie, but it's also fun and poetic and filled with joy. Like, everybody in the movie is laughing all the time. Um,
1: Would you say it's like an endless summer for skateboarding?
0: Not really. Um, I mean, it's more like it's more like a for skateboarding (laughs) than anything else. (laughs) It's just, it's really hard to describe what it is because it's so incomparable. I mean, it is a skateboarding movie. It's an hour of people skateboarding and building ramps like out in the middle of the desert. Uh, there's a lot of construction in the movie, which is funny because it's called Ye Old Destruction. But um, it's just sort of a celebration of the the DIY energy in the skate movement right now. And as somebody who lived the whole first half of his life on a skateboard. Uh, It was a joy to watch. It's in theaters right now so you have to see it in theaters. If you see it in theaters you'll either see it with the original score or uh, it's he also provides the option of turning the sound off and having a band score it live during the show. Oh cool. Uh, And then later on this year there's a possibility that it's going to be out on various streaming services Um, I know he, he doesn't really stream stuff now but he was talking at the screening he was talking about putting stuff up on streaming services later so um we might um we might get to see it online but for now it's in theaters so see it in theaters ye old destruction by thomas campbell lauren what is your recommendation
1: i have two this week Uh oh because we had a long weekend over labor day weekend and i was actually able to consume things nice yeah, this is why I think we should have four-day weeks every week. My Tell
0: us what did you consume? All
1: right, you're not sold. <laughs> I consumed. Uh, okay, so one of my recommendations is the Bay Curious podcast. It's a segment that is produced by KQED, and you can listen to the Bay Curious segments as standalone uh, little dispatches in the Bay Curious podcast. Um, And I was specifically into the episode that they did in partnership with the San Francisco Chronicle uh, on a project about homelessness not long ago and um, so I believe there were four questions so so the format of the Bay Curious podcast is that they always answer a question that somebody sends in and it could Mm -hmm. be something like why are there so many palm trees in the Bay Area or did Dutch crunch bread originate here or why do bars close so early in San Francisco and why is traffic so bad things like that and so in this particular episode Audrey Cooper from the San Francisco Chronicle joined and she helped answer four different questions about the homelessness crisis really that we have Mm -hmm. here in the Bay Area and I found it really fascinating and really worth a listen and my second recommendation is the Norman fucking Rockwell album by (laughs) Lana Del Rey and I just wanted to recommend it because it's so fun to say because like at the she was at the Apple event last year last fall she sang a track from it and you know they're all like Norman (laughs) Rockwell and I'm like just say fucking Norman fucking Rockwell (laughs) so here we go I think you should listen to it it's fantastic
0: alright sold
1: yeah
0: well, that's it for this week. Uh, thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. We love hearing your feedback. And also, it helps people find the show, the more reviews that we have. So please continue to do that. And you can also reach out to us on Twitter. Lauren, how can people find you on Twitter?
1: At Lauren Good with an E at the end.
0: And I am at SnackFight.
1: That's right. And Arielle is at Pardesoteric. Even though and she's not here. Even though she's not here, we'll save four. And Mike Isaac is um, at Mike Isaac, I yeah. think. He's the Charmin bear. You can't miss him. He loves your tweets. Send
2: him all <laughs> <while> your <he> tweets.
0: <laughs> um, thanks again to uh, Boone and Peter for engineering this week's mm-hmm. show. And we will be back next week uh, to talk about Apple.
3: Yay.